0: If you're a regular or a member, you got the email last night, if you didn't pay attention or if you didn't check your email, you don't know about this, but uh, check your email because we'll have information there. Uh, Starting next Sunday, you will no longer have to register uh, to attend a service, whether it's 9 a.m. or 11 a.m., right? You can just show up. We're not doing the registration thing anymore. Uh, We keep moving forward and and making adjustments as, you know, we, we make sense of the situation and as opportunities come as we get more uh, information from everything from the CDC to best practices and just knowing like what's best for our congregation. So number one, no more registering, but you're not going to have, you don't have to register for the, the worship, but we still need you for now to register your kids if they 're going to journey kids classes so that we can ensure that there are enough teachers and helpers in place there. Uh, we have certain things measurements that we like to maintain for everybody 's safety, so register your kids if they 're going to journey kids uh, secondly. Uh, we have a mandated mask service at 9 and a mask optional service at 11. Starting next week, uh, the 9 a.m. service will also become mask optional. So no, you are not mandated to wear a mask at the 9 a.m. service any longer. Uh, but we do want our people to pay attention. We'll still have room to socially distance. And, you know, if, there's, if somebody's uncomfortable or if somebody is sick or if they have to have a mask on, pay attention to that because they may not feel as free as you to hug and love and, like, you know, spread germs. So uh, be, be considerate toward one another And uh, try and give each other some room If you sense there might be some hesitancy on their part We just want to outdo one another in showing honor Alright, okay Revelation 10 y'all Revelation 10, I like this chapter I like it a lot because it is encouraging And I need to be encouraged um, But encouragement sometimes is a is a mixture of, of, of hot and cold, right? The, like, I can be encouraged by what the Lord is doing and is calling me to do while recognizing that there are some hard realities in there. Like, um, one of the things that stood out to me as I was reading this passage throughout the week is that uh, the more you care, the more you hurt, If you really care about people, if you really care about an individual, and if you love them, you will derive more joy from that relationship, yes, but you will also hurt more when they are hurting or making bad decisions. When they self-sabotage their life, or when they are just merely afflicted. The more you love, the more you hurt. That comes with the territory, and it's especially true for Christians, Because we're not called to just merely be or exist in the world as a countercultural force of opposition against all things evil. We're called to love, called to love our neighbors, even our enemies. And the more you love, the more you hurt, even in your relationships with the world. We're going to see this play out as we work our way through Revelation 10. But this is gonna particularly play itself out in the context of the ministry of the word. Your interaction with the world and the word. So here is, I'm gonna tell you up front, sermon summary, main idea, thesis, whatever you wanna call it, this is what I want you to hold on to throughout our time together. Very simple. The ministry of the word is both sweet and bitter to all who believe. The ministry of the word, right? That is the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the truth of God, all of the things that we are called to do with God's word, it is both sweet and bitter for all who believe. Now, we can't just jump into 10 because I know we keep getting visitors and y'all are like, oh, you're Revelation 10. What the heck's going on? So we gotta recap, okay, we gotta recap. And then all you regulars, you're forgetting anyway. So chapter 10 comes right after... See, this is why you need help. You don't even know. It comes after nine. See, you don't even know that. So, okay. What happens is, uh, before chapter 10, we're in the midst of this vision about seven trumpets. Okay? And before the seven trumpets, we had a vision about seven seals. Uh, So, the, the, the seven trumpets are being blasted by these seven angels, and as these trumpets are blasted, the effect is this consequence of chaos, uh, disorder, disaster, catastrophe in the world. Uh, Let me just summarize it for you. Uh, As the trumpets are blown, first trumpet is blown, we have this image of hail and fire coming from heaven, burning up a third of the earth. Then you have this trumpet that's blown, and there is a, a mountain that's on fire, and it's hurled into the ocean, and it kills a third of the ocean life. Then there's a falling star that falls from the heavens onto the the, the waterways on the earth and, and it poisons the waters. Then the sun and the moon and the stars are struck with the fourth trumpet and a third of their light is blocked out. In other words, we're getting this symbolic, terrifying, but sort of beautiful picture of natural disasters that happen in the earth. And these natural disasters that happen are both a consequence of our sin and a a foreshadowing and a promising of the judgment that is to come. But after the fourth trumpet, the fifth and the sixth, move away from natural disasters and it begins to reflect more spiritual chaos, opposition, and destruction. Because what's happening in those two trumpet blasts is demonic beings, fallen angels, the devil and his, wreaking havoc on the earth among the idolaters and the wicked. We see the demons torment uh, the wicked and the idolaters and ultimately triumph over them. So we've got natural disasters and spiritual attack happening in the world throughout Christ's first coming all the way to his second coming. It's happening. And all of this is a preview and a warning of God's judgment Against the wicked. And these afflictions, all of them, are afflicting some for judgment and others as merely a warning that the end is approaching. Now, for the wicked and those that refuse and reject the gospel, for idolaters, it is both a warning and a judgment. But for the people of God, when we experience a natural disaster, that's not God punishing us or judging us. We know that we've been reconciled to God and accepted through Christ. Rather, it is a warning that judgment is coming, that God will make things right, that the wicked will answer for their crimes if they aren't reconciled through Jesus. So, we're hearing these trumpet blasts. We're getting this explanation, and you can go back and listen to that sermon if you want all of that unpacked a little bit more. We have um, these these trumpets being blown. We're seeing this, what appears as, as catastrophic chaos at times, consequence of sin, judgment is coming, and then there is a pause. We don't get to the seventh trumpet yet. And this happened with the seals, right? We had one, two, three, four, five, six seals, and then pause. There was like an intermission or an interlude, and there was something else that happened before we got to the seventh seal. Same thing is happening here. There is an interlude. And the reason there's an interlude is because this teaching, these visions are so intense. They're so big. They're so overwhelming. It's pretty heavy stuff. We need encouragement. The church needs to be encouraged. We need, hey, can you, a little break, right? A little palate cleanser, right? And a little bit of refreshment here because this is heavy stuff. And what's happening in chapter 10 is the church of Jesus Christ is being encouraged and it's being called to action. That's what's happening here. It's a break in one vision, we're gonna get another, and then we're gonna get back to the seven trumpets, okay? And this is meant to be an encouragement, an encouragement to us and a call to action. So we look at verse one in chapter 10, it says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. New vision, new angel, who dis? We don't know, like... This is different. This, it says it's an angel, but it's described in a very unique way. It, in fact, a lot of scholars would argue that this angel isn't just an angel. This is the angel of the Lord, meaning this is Jesus Christ. It's another way of talking about Jesus. And the reason that they draw that conclusion is because, oh, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud coming down from heaven to earth we're going to see that his feet are planted on both earth and sea but he's coming down and he's wrapped in a cloud if you read the old testament and then even go into the new testament and start to trace the use of clouds being wrapped around beings or associated with beings you will see that they are attributing the the presence of god to a particular moment or event. God is the one who is coming down in clouds. People see the clouds. They know God is there. They hear his voice. This is something that's associated with divinity, not just angels. For example, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, you can read about it in Numbers 14 and other places as well, but when Israel is wandering through the wilderness, they are led by God, his presence. And how do they know that he is there? How do they see his presence? There is a pillar of smoke or a cloud during the day, and that cloud seems to lighten up like it's on fire at night. The pillar, the presence God is there with them. Even when uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai and God is interacting with him and giving them law and establishing this covenant for Israel to function as, as as a people, we read this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now this, this means that God is present. In fact, not only is this associated with God and God as God the Father, this cloud idea motif is specifically associated with the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It's associated with Jesus in more than one place. One of the big ones is Daniel chapter seven. Here we have a prophecy, a vision, that includes God the Father and God the Son. It says, I saw in the night visions. This is Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed that's Jesus right I mean that's I think most of us understand that we've interacted with this passage before and even if you haven't sounds like Jesus the father giving to a son of man a kingdom and people to serve him and worship him we're talking about the Lord but how does he come he comes with the clouds of heaven This angel appears wrapped in the clouds. In fact, listen to Revelation chapter one. Just listen. Revelation chapter one, verse seven. Speaking of Jesus, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail and account of of him. Even so, amen. Jesus comes in the clouds. He's exalted. He is God incarnate. It, that's not the only reason why a lot of scholars will argue this is Jesus. And I, I actually agree with them. It's either Jesus or it's an angel sent from Jesus to reflect Jesus to them. Which is too many steps for me. I like it being Jesus. So there's another reason. It's, also, it's this rainbow, right? It says, uh, not only is he wrapped in a cloud in 10.1, also with a rainbow over his head. We see the the rainbow associated with God, God's covenant faithfulness, his promises, right? The Noahic covenant. But we also see it coming up in particular visions around God himself. So one example would be Ezekiel uh, chapter one, starting in verse 26. Here's a vision. We're in the middle of the vision here. Above the expanse, over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne, In appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. Like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so is the appearance of the brightness all around. This, this vision, this picture, this crazy picture of divinity, of God, and rainbows are frequently associated with it. In fact, I mean, even, even in Revelation, we just, we just saw this. We go back to Revelation chapter 4. Right? In uh, Revelation 4, we have this uh, the throne in heaven. Right, we see the throne in heaven, the Lord is sitting on the throne. Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. This angel descending from heaven to earth wrapped in a cloud has a rainbow above his head. And there's more, he's got this bright, brilliant, shining face. I'm just going to read one passage. Revelation 1.16. Just listen. Speaking of Jesus in this vision, in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. The angel is the son of God. Might could be wrong. If it's not him, it's an angel that's supposed to represent and reflect Christ in some way. And you can see how this works. This angel, who has legs like pillar of fire, I have the opposite. Mine look like sticks of ice. They're, they're translucent. Uh, they're very cold. And there's hardly any circulation in them. And they're, they're, not, they're not good to look at. He's got these pillars of fire. And again, it's probably a reference. Where, I mean, it, it, we're we're basing it on what we've seen throughout Scripture, right? Pillars of fire, it's a dramatic picture. It's a powerful picture, so it it indicates sovereignty and authority, but it also could be associated with the pillar of smoke or pillar of cloud and fire that led Israel through the wilderness until they entered the promised land. Here is Christ. And he has in his hand A little scroll that's open. You see it in verse two. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he called out with a loud voice. Little scroll. He has a little scroll in his hand. Little scroll in comparison to the other scroll that we read about. Before, right? You guys remember Revelation 5? The scroll, big scroll, seven seals. We know it's a big scroll because it can have seven seals on it. And not only does it have seven seals on it, when, you, when Jesus and only Jesus can open that scroll, as he does, contained inside the scroll, is all of God's plans for redemption and judgment. Everything, all that he will accomplish in the world for his glory is unraveled in that scroll. But here, it's a little scroll, It's a scroll that can be opened in the hand, seen at once. It's like a a piece of paper. You can see it all at once. He's got this message. It's a message. And as he holds this message, this angel, this angelic being, Christ is standing on both sea and land. You know, it's like, it's almost like all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, like the sea and the land is his. It's almost like, it's almost like The earth is his footstool, you know what I'm saying? This is Christ standing, coming to earth to be present with us, and he holds this scroll. And he roars like a lion. Listen to this. He called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So you you get this. This sovereign being, standing large, looming over all creation, owning it, speaks loud with like a roar. It sounds like seven thunderclaps just rolling across the sky. That idea of a voice like a roaring lion sounding like thunder is frequently associated with the voice of God. This, this is God speaking in some way. And you can see it in passages like Hosea chapter 11, verse 10, or Jeremiah uh, chapter 25, uh, verse 35, this idea of the Lord's voice roar, roaring like a, a lion, and these thunders listen to uh, psalm 29 i'll just i'll go here psalm 29 how quickly i can get here the whole idea that this is just an angel becomes problematic for me because too many of the things that are described of the angel and too many of the things that he does reflect God or even more specifically, Jesus. So one more thing to look at here. It would just be um, Psalm 29, verses three and four. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God Thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So he speaks. The voice of God speaks. But look at what happens. When the, This is verse four. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So John's doing his thing. John's being John. He's like, I'm writing everything down. This is awesome. I'm going to record everything. I'm going to share it. It's going to go all over the place, and then people are going to misinterpret it and make bad movies, but it's still going to be used by the Lord. It's going to accomplish great things. So he's writing everything down, and as he begins to write down the seven thunders, this thing that was just uttered, the voice from heaven, God says, don't write that down. Don't. Leave it off. You can know it, but you can't share it, which might sound weird. right? Well, why? I thought the re- whole point of Revelation was to reveal things. And that's true. 99% of the time when God reveals something, uh, that revelation is then shared and proclaimed and heralded all over. But there are times when he reveals something to a limited audience, like the apostle Paul. God revealed things to Paul that Paul was not allowed to share with anybody else. And Paul doesn't even allude to what it was about. He just says, like, you know what? God showed me some things, took me up, heavenly visions, can't say, can't share it. We don't know why. Don't know why. Don't know the purpose. What, what's God doing? What what this does is it reflects a principle that we see in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, the, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we might learn to obey God, right? Essentially, that's what it says. And, and so what we have there is this principle of, well, there are things that belong to the Lord that he does not reveal to everybody. Things that you can't possibly know until after the fact if we're talking about his sovereign will of decree. There are things that you don't know, things that you're not supposed to know you got to be okay with that. There are things that God withholds. He doesn't give you the answer to every question. You don't deserve the answers to the questions that you have. God doesn't owe us that. Those things are secret. They are for him. But there are things that he does reveal, and those are for you. You still don't deserve them. We still aren't worthy of these answers, but he graciously gives them to us, and those are what we're supposed to know. This is a principle that we see at play here because in, in one sense... There's something that John can't share, he can't record, but we're going to see that there's more to this than just that. So he can't share, and then in verses 5 through 7, this angelic being makes an oath. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to the heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it. He made an oath that there would be no more wait. That there would be no more delay. In other words, this angel says, I vow now that the delay of that last trumpet will not take much longer we're not trying to prolong things here the end is coming the end is nigh and so you're yearning you're for it. The, the church is waiting for it because we see suffering, affliction, and death, and evil, and satanic attacks. We see all of these things happening. We experience persecution and hardship. We see the world being led into hell by the devil. Lord, when are you going to make it right? When are you going to make it stop? When's that seventh trumpet going to sound? And the final day of the Lord going to come? The angel says, well, there won't be more delay. Just, we're getting there. So he swears, and before he makes this oath, he swears. Some people get tripped up. Let me just make it a a small aside here. I know some people are like, well, I thought thought Jesus said, don't swear, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So I thought oaths oaths were bad. Some people think oaths are bad, you shouldn't swear. a couple of problems with that. One is uh, the Old Testament uh, c- commands and permits oaths to be taken for serious occasions if you take the name of the Lord properly, not in vain. You're using the Lord's name to bring a sense of veracity to what you're saying when you are doubted or when there is a question. In the New Testament as well, uh, people are swearing all the time. Not like you all swear. I mean like they swear oaths, right? They swear oaths. And it was like um, Paul does it all the time. Paul's always saying uh, things like, uh, as God is my witness, because God is my witness. God bears witness to the truth that I'm saying. He, frequently, he swears to God all the time to, about serious matters to bring a sense of urgency to what he's saying and to let people know that he's very serious. So the angel is here, Christ is here, swearing to the Father saying the end is nigh. No more delay. The seventh trumpet is coming and this is a comfort to God's people who are yearning for the end because the end for us is the beginning of paradise. It's the end of disasters. It's the end of death. It's the end of deceit. It's the end of temptation. It's the end of our sin and the sin that's in the world. And then John is invited to do something very strange. Look at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is giving us a picture of the ministry of the word and what the church is supposed to be doing now until that last trumpet is blown, until the day of the Lord gets here. See, we're comforted to know the end is near, but we're also called to action And the call to action is to preach God's word, to hold out the word of the gospel to others that they may be saved from the wrath to come. The voice says, go and take it. Go and take. Almost sounds like Matthew 28, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and take that scroll, that little scroll, out of the angel's hand. Take it. And so when he goes and he asks the angel, the angel's like, yeah, now eat it. This is strange, right? It's so weird. It's weird, but it's amazing. It, 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 it's, it's dreamlike, right? It's the kind of thing like, that doesn't work. You can't eat a scroll, but in the vision, you can. He's given the scroll, he's told to eat it, and when you eat it, it's gonna be sweet. It's gonna taste yummy. You're gonna love it, but it's also gonna be bitter. It's gonna be bitter in your stomach. There's gonna be something about it. It is a good thing, but it's going to have this other alternate effect on you as well. By the way, the whole idea of eating the scroll, now that's not unique here. Uh, we, we see this in, uh, in, back in Ezekiel. I mean, a, a lot of these things that happen in Revelation are connected to other visions so that we can get a consistent sense of, of what's being communicated here. But look at Ezekiel chapter three. In Ezekiel three, again, the Lord's speaking It was a vision. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. This is what's happening here. John eats the scroll, and he is ingesting the very word of God to be shared with others. It's going to be sweet, but it's going to be bitter. Sweet is easy. If you're a believer, you have found sweetness in the word of God. You you found it because in the word of God, there are promises and blessings the revelation of God himself just to understand to begin to understand to begin to scratch the surface of how beautiful our God is that's grace to understand his his purpose and his intentions and the things that he is doing and how he has saved us and rescued us and forgiven us and then how he is sanctifying us and changing us progressively and helping us to become not just better people in the world but better reflections of our creator He is restoring our humanity. The word of God is sweet in all of these ways. In fact, in Psalm 119 and in Psalm 19, we read that metaphor, right, that it's sweet like honey, a few times. Let me just read one, Psalm 1910. Psalm 19 is all about revelation, right? The first half is about God's revelation in nature. Second half is all about God's revelation in scripture. General revelation, and special revelation. Once he starts running through all of the ways in, in, in which God's revelation is glorious and good, it says this in verse 10, more to be desired are they, that is God's rules, his commandments, his precepts, the verses, right, like our, our, the scripture. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God's word is sweet. You've been, in comf- you've been comforted and encouraged by God's word throughout your life at different times, no doubt but it's also bitter. I don't think you could spend much time in God's word without experiencing a bit of bitterness, right? And the bitterness that we experience from the ministry of the word in our lives, it it comes in in a few different ways, I'm just gonna mention two. One is there is a bitterness that we taste when we engage in the wonderful ministry of the word that is connected to a conviction of our sin and the exposing of our own waywardness and unrighteousness. Uh, like, what was it? Yesterday I came downstairs. I actually took a nap. It was nice. And I came downstairs and I stepped in water. I was in my socks and I stepped in water because the dog drinks like a fool and just can't just drink. The dog gets to drink and then put water all over the floor. So I came down. I was like going to hang out and I step in water and I'm like, oh, look at this, man. I'm stepping, water everywhere. And I, I, I was complaining about it. I'm probably, I'm probably saying it not as the way I said it. But, uh, but I, I, then I got in trouble for complaining and then I got in a bad mood. I was like, what the heck, man? I was complaining about water. You're complaining about me. I wasn't mad, at, I was mad at water, but you're mad at me about being mad at water. And I got all upset. And, uh, and I, was, I was getting frustrated about it. And I, I kind of went I did my own thing. And I was experiencing a kind of bitterness. And what was happening is God was beginning to put pressure on my heart and on my mind because I was breaking his law. I was being a person of complaints. I was an ill-mannered, unappreciative, self-centered person who was upset because water got on his toes. You, get, you feel the bitterness when you're convicted, right? When you, when you sense your, not only your unworthiness, but your worthiness of being damned. That's bitter, but that's another kind of bitterness that we experience through the ministry of the word. And you only experience this if you're doing the ministry of the word correctly. Meaning that you engage in the ministry of the word out of a sense of love for God and love for others. Because like I said, The more you care, the more you hurt. The more you love, the more joy and the more sorrow you will experience. And when you are sharing God's word, like John is called to, like Ezekiel was called to, like you all are called to be ambassadors of Christ, we are all called to represent Jesus and to testify, to witness, to hold out the hope of the gospel. If we do this with a sense of love and urgency for the people that God has put in our lives and they say no and they reject it and they walk away, we know that they're walking into destruction. We know that they're, they're not just choosing an alternate path. We know that they're walking to hell. And it should grieve us. It should be bitter to the taste. Not because there's anything wrong with God's word. It's wonderful, but because they don't see it. They haven't yet tasted how sweet the honey is. There's pain in our hearts when we see people reject the world. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. Check this out. Romans chapter 9. He says in verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Oh, you know what he's doing there? He's swearing. Ha-ha, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Oh, bro, okay, we believe you. You're being super serious. You're telling the truth three times. Okay. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Bitterness. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. He's brokenhearted. He tastes bitterness because the people that he loves, his people, the Jews, who had the covenants and the promises and the law, the land, they had all of it, all of it pointing to Jesus. He tastes the bitterness because they're not Embracing the Messiah that was sent for them. He says, They are the Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But they did not receive him. And so the word, the ministry of the word, produces a bitterness in Paul. It doesn't make him bitter. It tastes bitter because his heart hurts, because the ministry of the word is both sweet and bitter to all who believe. Listen, you don't experience this kind of bitterness if you don't love your neighbor, if you don't love people. If you're just, I mean, I don't know why you would share the gospel anyways if you didn't, maybe out of a sense of naked duty, like, well, I'm supposed to do it, so I'm gonna share the gospel. And they say, no thanks, loser, Christian loser. I'm out of here, you're you're dumb. Uh, And if you're just like, all right, cool, man. You do you? Did you not grieved about it Do you love them? Are you concerned for them? Are you burdened for them? Jesus wept over Jerusalem. The prophets weep over their people, because the ministry of the word is both sweet and bitter. So when you look at chapter 10, you have this interlude at the end of this vision of seven trumpets being blown that demonstrate all that is happening as these warnings and acts of judgment against the wicked. Before we get to the seventh, we have this interlude where the people of God are encouraged. Christ is with you. He's given you his word. And the end is nigh. So be active in this ministry, but expect both sweetness and bitterness. Yes, wait for the day of the Lord. It's a day of rejoicing. It is the most important event that will ever happen in our lives, of course. But don't be passive. Be active. You see, we have eaten the scroll. As the church, as Christians, we've eaten the scroll. We... We have the word of God inside of us. That doesn't mean that the word of God is in you and it's whatever you want it to be. It means the revelation that God has given us has been read and received by us and now it dwells in our hearts by faith. We hold it. We hide it in our hearts. It forms us and makes us. And because of this, we experience both the sweetness and the bitterness. We proclaim this word to all with the hope, the eager hope, anticipation, and prayerful agony that more will be converted. Like Paul says in Romans 10, starting in verse eight, he says, what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. or hiding until Christ comes back. We are given the ministry of the word. We are entrusted with the ministry of the word to hold out this hope for everyone around us. That they might have what we have. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Revelation 10 Comforts us to know, yeah, there's a lot of chaos, destruction, even judgment happening out there. God is active, but He's with you, and Christ is present. And in the midst of all of this, you are sealed, you are protected, and you are called to go out and to proclaim that word that you know so well it's as if you have eaten it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We ask that you would teach us beyond what we're gonna think about even just in the short time that we have here, that you would cause our faith to grow, our understanding of you and your ways and your word. We want it to be clear and sharp and strong. Lord, we wanna know what it means for us so that we can in turn share it for others. We pray, God, that you would be pleased to allow us to see more people enter the kingdom of heaven as we share this good news whether they join our church or not. Help us to see more pass from death to life, to be taken from the kingdom of darkness and damnation and transferred into the kingdom of life and light. In Jesus' name, amen.